Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Ditch the clowns on the left. And the jokers on the right. And join Michael Smirconish right here in the middle. This is the Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. Hi, everybody. It has seemed imminent for about a week now, but finally, sadly, it is apparently game on with regard to Russia moving into Ukraine. Uh, From the Times, Dateline Moscow, President Vladimir Putin on Monday ordered troops into separatist-held eastern Ukraine and hinted at the possibility of a wider military campaign delivering an emotional and aggrieved address to his nation that laid claim to all of Ukraine as a country, quote, created by Russia. In a moment, I'm eager to welcome Admiral Jim Stavridis to the program. He was the 16th Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, and where so much of this subject matter has to do with Putin vis-a-vis NATO and Ukraine, he is the ideal guest for us to have. Interesting to see the media reaction to this, who regards it as a quote-unquote invasion and who does not regard it as an invasion. Our survey question today at Smirconish.com asks exactly that. If Russian troops enter separatist-held eastern Ukraine, is it an invasion? Another semantic issue and one to watch in the reportage is who is using quotation marks around peace or peacekeeping? I'm looking at a headline in the Washington Post today in the print edition, which says Putin sends, quote, peacekeeping force into Ukraine. I think the quotation marks is the right way to go. Back to the Times, they point this out. After his speech yesterday, state television showed Mr. Putin at the Kremlin signing decrees recognizing the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, which were formed after Russia fomented a separatist war in eastern Ukraine in 2014, The decrees published by the Kremlin directed the Russian Defense Ministry to deploy troops in those regions to carry out, quote, peacekeeping functions. Mediaite, which we linked to at Smirkandish.com today, had uh, the take of Gary Kasparov, who was on this program here within the last uh, four to six weeks, in the following context. As Monday's events unfolded between Russia and Ukraine, with Vladimir Putin unilaterally declaring two breakaway regions of Ukraine, quote, independent, and then sending in, quote unquote, peacekeeping forces, the media struggled to keep up with exactly how to explain what was happening. 
Garry Kasparov, the former chess world champion turned human rights activist, tweeted out some thoughts on how the media and Western leaders should refer to Putin's moves. Kasparov responded to former U.S. attorney Preet Bahara, who asked, peacekeeping troops to Donbass is an invasion, yes or no? So that was what Bahara asked via Twitter. Kasparov responds, Putin's forces on Ukrainian soil is and always has been an invasion. But watch how Western leaders try to weasel out of their promises by saying it's anything else. Remember, they called Crimea an unauthorized landing. And then he followed up by arguing, we can call Putin invaders peacekeepers if he calls the billions in assets to be seized from him and his cronies charitable donations. Kasparov then continued saying we need a children's textbook for the media, and he explained how best to refer to what was happening today in Ukraine. For example, wrong would be President Putin to send peacekeepers to break away regions of U- of Ukraine. Right would be Russian dictator formally announces annexation of additional Ukrainian territories after eight years of military occupation. All right, let's get to the special guest on this important subject. Jim Stavridis attended the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, spent 37 years in the Navy, rose to the rank of four-star admiral among his many commands. How about four years as the 16th Supreme Allied Commander at NATO? He is also the author of a best-selling novel. It's called 2034, a novel of the next world war. He co-wrote that with Elliot Ackerman, a past guest on this program. And oh, by the way, in his free time, you could say that he's the managing director and vice chair of global affairs at the Carlyle Group. And as if that's not enough, he's the chair of the board of trustees of the Rockefeller Foundation. Admiral, thank you so much for coming back to my program. It's great to be with you, Michael. I have questions beneath your pay grade. So here's number one. Speaking of NATO, is this all an effort to roll back NATO in Eastern Europe? It is certainly part of Vladimir Putin's calculus. He wants to threaten Ukraine, but as part of that, he wants to push back the forward deployment of NATO troops. The ironic thing, Michael, is that this invasion is going to have precisely the opposite effect. You're going to see U.S. troops flood the zone in Eastern Europe. You're going to see U.K. troops come into Poland. You're going to see French troops go to Romania. This is going to do nothing but create more problems for Vladimir Putin. In other words, he's going to bring about the very outcome that he seeks to avoid. He is, and I'll give you one other dark end of the spectrum for Vladimir Putin. It would be this, that Finland and Sweden, which are not NATO members formally, but are very close partners, um, decide that now is the moment they join NATO because they see the threat from Russia. And boy, those are two highly capable militaries, very advanced techno democracies. NATO would love to have both of them. Watch for that one in the weeks and months ahead. Well, why wouldn't Putin realize that that's the outcome or does he? I don't think he does realize it. And, you know, for all of the uh, the way we think of Russia as a, a land of great chess players, 
I think Vladimir Putin is not a master chess player. He's kind of a jujitsu guy. That's his skill set. He has a black belt in judo, supposedly. And he likes to try and keep everybody off bounds. He's a very good tactician, but he's a lousy strategist because this is going to land Russia in a much worse position than before he started. Admiral, I'm obviously not asking you to give up any secrets, but how well do we know him? How well do we understand his his personality, his psyche, what motivates him? We understand him quite well. We have, uh, if you will, a very full dossier on Lieutenant Colonel Vladimir Putin, the highest rank he attained in the KGB. He was stationed in East Germany. Um, and he believes with all of his soul that the dissolution of the Soviet Union was, as he says, the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. He's bitter, he's angry, and he truly, deeply, madly hates the United States and hates NATO for causing this dissolution. That's in many ways the root cause of what's going on here. Does he recognize Ukraine as his buffer and because Ukraine is now tilting toward NATO, even if NATO is not ready to accept Ukraine, he fears that if all of a sudden Ukraine is part of NATO, then there's now nothing left, no distance between Russia and NATO. He does fear that, and there is some logic to that. But I'll tell you what he fears even more is the example of the Ukrainian population, big country, 45 million people. If the people in Russia, upon whose throats Putin keeps his boot, he's now been the, quote, president, unquote, for over 20 years. If the people in Russia start to watch Ukraine and see it, join NATO, join the European Union, become a prosperous, Western-leaning democracy. That's a bad example to the people of Russia if your objective is to continue to dominate it the way that Putin does. So, Michael, he both wants the geography, but he also wants the example that you can't break away when you're under the sway of Vladimir Putin. What's the off-ramp that he could be offered, if any? I think at this point, it's pretty hard to see anything other than giving him a dose of crippling sanctions, continuing to arm the Ukrainian military, prepare, you know, worst case for a Ukrainian government in exile and a resistance inside the country, rally the world's democracies, make Vladimir Putin persona non grata in every democratic country in the world. I don't see much of an off-ramp. I suppose if Putin were willing to uh, step back, uh, he could at this point offer negotiations on things like conventional forces Europe, missile defenses in Europe, um, the intermediate uh, long-range cruise missile treaties. But, Michael, I I hate to say it. I think the time for that has passed. Uh, We are going to have to place Russia under significant sanctions. I think you'll see that in the days ahead. Just two more, and thank you for being so gracious with your time. I ask you this in your capacity as a former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. How nervous should Americans be about the escalation of all of this? I am not overly concerned about a kinetic, if you will, ordnance, missiles, tanks, bombs kind of confrontation between NATO and Russia or the United States and Russia. I think both nations understand how potentially lethal that could be to the world. But what I am worried about in terms of horizontal escalation of this crisis is cyber. Um, Here we see 
Russia already probing Ukraine's cyber. Um, we, the United States, we, NATO, are going to try to help Ukraine resist that at some point. That could lead to Putin miscalculating and using cyber against the United States or against NATO. Um, that would be less dangerous than a full-on kinetic interaction between the two sides. But nonetheless, these cyber tools pose real dangers. We ought to be very cognizant of that in the time ahead. And finally, Admiral, the survey question of the day today at Smirconish.com. If Russian troops enter separatist-held eastern Ukraine, is it an invasion? It is an invasion, absolutely. And I'll give you the textbook definition of an invasion. And here I'm speaking as the former dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Uh, This is well known. An invasion is the imposition of armed troops on a sovereign nation without the permission of that nation to accomplish political purpose. It doesn't matter whether it's a squad of 12 Spetsnaz, three tanks, or 200,000 people. An invasion is an invasion. Admiral, can't thank you enough for allowing me to intrude on your busy day. Thank you so, so much. You bet. We'll do it again soon. I hope so. Thank you. Admiral Jim Stavridis, ladies and gentlemen, the 16th Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. He has answered today's survey question at Smirconish.com. I invite all of you to do likewise. A lot of interesting things to unpack from a seven-minute phone conversation. He's not as worried about kinetic conflict, I think was his word choice, as he is about the cyber impact this could have on the United States. And he says it absolutely is an invasion. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash 
Smirconish, netsuite.com slash Smirconish, netsuite.com slash Smirconish. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and on the SXM app. Today's survey question at Smirconish.com asks, if Russian troops enter separatist-held eastern Ukraine, is it an invasion? You've already heard the answer of Admiral Jim Stavridis, the 16th Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. His was a definitive yes. I'll soon put that question to Michael Kaufman. He's the director of Russia Studies at CNA. That's a research institute based in Arlington, Virginia. Mr. Kaufman, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on your program. You said to the New York Times within the last couple of days, Putin in the last year has crossed a lot of Rubicons, folks who believe that something this dramatic is unlikely or improbable may not have observed that qualitative shift in the past two years. Could you expand on that thought? Sure. I see the change that we're observing now as one of almost the alignment of Russian foreign policy to the tremendous changes that have taken place in Russian domestic politics. The uh, character of the regime changed quite a bit in recent years. Uh, Putin reformed and changed the Russian constitution, allowing himself to stay in power. He imprisoned the main opposition leader and has essentially crushed the principal uh, domestic opposition movement in Russia. He's instituted fairly repressive uh, foreign agent law that has really suppressed the ability of people to speak out or conduct journalism or actually even investigate basic things like troop movements. Perhaps even more recently, he banned Memorial, a very famous organization, right, which principally focused on exposing the various crimes of Stalin's regimes. And such organizations now gone from the scene. Nobody's around to account for anything that might happen next when it comes to uh, Russian military intervention in Ukraine. Even suppress the, the Mothers of Soldiers organization, which is the principal organization in civil society that represents the various soldiers and conscripts and usually advocates on their behalf when they're sent to these types of conflicts. So what's the big picture goal from your perspective? Oh, I, I think that what's happened in the last couple of days is just the first phase of what is going to be a pretty large-scale Russian military operation against Ukraine. And Russia is going to pursue maximalist political goals in Ukraine. They will try to impose regime change, and they're not successful in that. They may follow through with a prolonged occupation of large parts of the country. Certainly not the entire day of the country, but a good deal of it. Well, that was my next question. In other words, you don't think that they'll stop with just these separatist-held eastern Ukraine areas. You think they'll go further, but not all of Ukraine, and certainly not other former Eastern Bloc countries? That's right. That's right. But it's important to understand that the conflict was never about these separatist statelets and had nothing to do with them. In fact, they were just the point of leverage. And those who think that the the crisis ends here and need to ask themselves, why would Russia unilaterally 
give up its principal leverage in Ukraine in exchange for absolutely nothing and then back down. All right. That's not the case. Right. This is just the change of of the Russian approach. And as you can see, Moscow has 190,000 troops almost surrounding Ukraine. These troops have absolutely nothing to do with the recognition of dependence of these breakaway republics. And they're not even located near them. And it should be a good indicator for you of what might come next. What's your answer to my survey question today? By entering separatist-held eastern Ukraine is the proper word choice invasion? That's something that the media is struggling with. Yeah, I could see that. Probably renewed invasion is the correct term. Russia has actually kept troops there over the last eight years. And it's been rotating troops to these separatist republics ever since 2014. Right. So in, in practical terms, it's not a tremendous change, but it is a very important qualitative change by, by recognizing their independence. Um, Russia has now formally uh, acknowledged its military presence in Ukraine and has essentially made it permanent. So I understand why folks are struggling with the right term. Michael Kaufman is Research Program Director of the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analyses and an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. In Foreign Affairs recently, writing with Jeffrey Edmonds, you said this, In the case of Ukraine, a war would have a host of potential long-term consequences. Ukrainian resistance might live on as an insurgency, although paradoxically, it would be most successful in one part of the country. Russia is unlikely to invade its west, but an insurgency, especially if externally sponsored, might still bleed Russian forces and resources over the years. When I read what you wrote, I immediately thought of Afghanistan. Why isn't Putin more concerned that this could be another Afghanistan folly? I mean, the short answer is because Ukraine isn't Afghanistan, right? There, there are tremendous differences, and we, we shouldn't generalize from one specific case to another. Uh, that being said, the reason he's not concerned is the same reason many leaders aren't concerned when they launch conflicts like this. I mean, looking back to 2002-2003, we can ask ourselves, why was the United States not so concerned prior to the invasion of Iraq? That that might be a giant folly. The short and honest answer is that war optimism is one of the biggest drivers of international conflicts. Leaders have a lot of assumptions. They make uh, tremendous choices like this on the basis of poor information, and they often rationalize. They convince themselves that all the um, qualifiers and other concerns their subordinates raise, or maybe not raise to them, that they're not important, that the war might be speedy, that they might attain a decisive victory and that they, their forces could be greeted as liberators. And I suspect that might be one of the things that's driving Russian decision-making in this case. Well, do you think that's the possibility? Because, boy, that would really change the narrative, I think, here in the States, if all of a sudden people turned on their favorite cable outlet and saw the, the Russian, quote-unquote, invaders greeted uh, as victors. I don't think so, but I'm also not sure about expectations of some sizable insurgency, particularly in eastern regions of Ukraine. It's a bit of a Schrodinger's cat question, to be honest. We just don't know what will happen. I certainly think it's going to be much harder, much more arduous than than probably uh, Russian uh, political leadership expects. Mr. Kaufman, I always hear about the, the tiny size of the Russian economy. Oh, it's half the size of the California economy. Can he afford, he, Putin, afford to do this financially? Yes, absolutely. Um, the problem is people often compare economies uh, just by looking at the size of GDP 
converted by a market exchange rate sort of into U.S. dollars. And those dramatically distorts the actual size of economy. It's fair to say that in, in its global economic cap, that is its value as a market for trade or global economic influence, Russia's economy isn't that big. But in terms of the actual size of economic activity, economic power, it's fairly sizable. It is probably the second largest economy in Europe overall, one of the largest in the world. So I wouldn't underestimate it. And as always, you know, sometimes when you look at things, you get a very obvious uh, problem between the, you know, the outputs and the inputs, which is if you think Russia is a tiny economy, but then you see Russia being able to sustain this competition, this confrontation with the United States, with European countries for so long, is able to engage in all these different types of military operations, then you need to ask yourself, something's clearly wrong with this picture, right? So Russia has far more economic power in practice than it may appear to these basic sort of flat measurements. So wipe the slate clean. Tell me what I've missed so far. What does Michael Kaufman think we most need to know as we're watching these events unfold? Um, Well, I won't say you've missed it, but the big issue here is the follow-on crisis from potential Russia invasion in Ukraine. Because once we impose strategic sanctions on Russia, Russia's not going to take them sitting down. There's going to be tit-for-tat retaliation, so it's going to be fairly asymmetric because Russia doesn't have the same economic means to retaliate against U.S. sanctions. And we're very likely looking at a follow-on Russian NATO crisis in Europe. So this isn't just about Ukraine, even though we're obviously focused on it and the media is focused on it. Folks really have to pay attention to what's going to happen in European security in the following months. That's not what happens the day after this crisis, right? But months down the road, um, we're, we're looking at a, a real defining moment for European security, and we're entering a period of tremendous uncertainty. Admiral Stavridis was here a couple of moments ago, and when I asked him how nervous, how concerned we should be, he said not so much about kinetic warfare, but he said, cyber is something that concerns him, that that maybe that would be a retaliatory move by Putin in response to the sanctions. What do you think? I think that's quite right, but uh, that would be the very first retaliatory move, right? It's important to try to look uh, further ahead down the road and see how a crisis like that can escalate. Uh, And also, there's going to be tremendous changes in Russian force posture in Europe, in Belarus and Ukraine. We don't know how our allies will react. Our force posture is going to change, too. The United States is going to have to deploy more ground forces in Europe, most likely following this uh, this conflict. And, and that's going to take us down a fairly, you know, potentially perilous road of remilitarization of uh, this part of Eastern and Central Europe. So, no, it's not just going to be cyber. I just want to be clear on that. Not that I believe we're, you know, either side necessarily intends to have a conflict. But uh, I just want to be frank that there's tremendous uncertainty about where this conflict goes. And there's no guarantee that it will be localized to Ukraine. To, to someone who's listening, I promise this is my final question, and thank you for being so gracious with your time. To someone who's listening here in the States with a very insular or parochial, uh, you know, what's it got to do with me view of the world, you would say what? I would say that once the United States sanctions major Russian banks, there'll be tremendous disruption uh, to the global economy. But more importantly, these economic sanctions, their ultimate effect will probably be to further disrupt commodity prices. Okay, so the long story short is if some weeks or months from now your gas price goes up at the pump, right, and other things you're looking at rise in, in, in actual price, you will feel the effects. They do concern every individual, both American 
and uh, and Europeans. They, they, there will be consequences uh, from from what's likely going to happen in the coming weeks. Well, I thought that was really insightful. Thank you very, very much. Thanks. Thanks for having me on your program. Michael Kaufman's the director of Russia Studies at CNA, and I thought had a lot of really good insight there. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 